All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another Bell Curve Roundup podcast. You got Michaels 1 and 2, Vance, and Yano. Fellas, welcome. Are we all agree that this is now officially a macro pod and we can stop talking about all this magic internet money nonsense and talk about interest I mean, rates? <clears throat> we, can, uh, we can get back to, to talking about crypto as soon as crypto has some news to talk about. See, I didn't want to pivot this into a macro pod. I wanted to pivot this into a Bitcoin pod. I think it's uh, T minus two months until Vance is a, a Bitcoiner. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, like, I think this is one of the craziest macro weeks of all time. So it's it's all right that we talk about macro a little bit. Just like we have show notes for this, and I was looking at them, and there's stuff about European banks in there. I just have no idea how to handicap any of that. You're our European banking expert. <laughs> we we're we're dependent on you for this for the analysis here. I mean, I think the I think the more interesting thing is is starting with like we had a full weekend where our friends were without potentially their money, you know, friends, portfolio founders, portfolio companies, whatever. Um and that was that was pretty interesting. It feels like, you know, even though the situation has resolved, you know, that was uh like one of the goalposts for okay, now we're in a recession. Everyone everyone is like, okay, it's on. You know, once bank starts failings, like that's that's when it kind of gets indisputable. And so that was one experience over the weekend that I thought was interesting. The other one was the USDC DPEG. And like we should talk about this a little bit more, but I, I, I think the DPEG is like the feature of the system. You know, like compare someone at Silicon Valley Bank not knowing if they're going to get zero or 100, having no liquidity over the weekend, having to meet payroll versus someone that had a bunch of USDC. You know, sure, it, it did get a little dicey for 12 hours, but... The fact that you're able to depeg, realize that there's reserves in there, and then it repegs, that to me is a validation of the system. It doesn't, you know, like the fact that one of the underlying banks failed doesn't make me think any differently of USDC. It makes me think that they need more banks. And to the announcement that they put out yesterday, they now have BNY Mellon as their primary uh, cash custodian. And so I think the net of a lot of this stuff is some banks failed, yes. USDC depegged, yes. Like the USDC depeg was a feature, in my opinion. But I think also Operation Choke Point is, is kind of like backfiring. Like, sure, you killed all of the regional banks. Now it puts the onus on the largest banks to be the arbiters of does this industry survive or die? And it looks like, you know, so far they've given us a little bit warmer of a reception than we would have expected otherwise. So that's kind of what I think about it. Can you guys walk us through what, I mean, you were like, all, all of our friends lost their money. What, 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 <laughs> what did the weekend look like to you guys? Yeah, so... I mean, the, this has been like talked about ad nauseum, so not going to spend too much time on it. But <clears throat> Silicon Valley Bank was the the dominant bank for tech companies, uh, biotech companies, um, venture firms, basically the entire entrepreneurial landscape <clears throat> that is, um, you know, quote unquote Silicon Valley. Also, just as a side note, I, I think calling it Silicon Valley Bank was probably one of the worst things that could have happened given this situation and, you know, just the narrative about bailing out or fixing or backstopping Silicon Valley Bank is never going to play nicely. Um, <clears throat> even if, you know, in reality, most of the bank deposits were from companies that are less than 100 people. Um, that I think, you know, 
that that narrative flew underneath the radar, which I think you know probably should have been more pronounced. Um, the 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 net net of it is this bank was the 16th largest bank based on bank deposits had over 200 billion dollars of bank deposits on its balance sheet at time of FDIC receivership uh 90 plus percent of that was uninsured bank deposits which means that every every account that you have has a $250,000 FDIC deposit insurance because most of these were companies that were using these accounts as literally places to keep the money that they just raised until they have to make payroll, <clears throat> that was most of what this use case for this bank was. Uh, or it was, you know, lines of credit, but it was, you know, banking services built for early stage companies, uh, which means that you don't have the flexibility of being a publicly traded company or something the size of Doodle where you've got 10 different banking partners and you've got 100 different bank accounts that you're using for different use cases depending on the business lines or the use cases you know that you need to be you know storing or sending money and so you had a lot of the concentration risk of Silicon Valley Bank um, in a lot of these tech companies and you know making payroll is one of the largest it's sorry it's one of the highest things on the preference stack if you fail to make payroll, it's it's potentially even higher than most of the debt that you would raise, <clears throat> that that would be a liability that you have on the balance sheet greater than basically the, the available value that's uh, or assets within the company itself. So when you can't make payroll, you effectively have to shut down operations. And not making payroll was something that we were looking at for a lot of companies or a lot of our friends' companies. Uh, if they weren't going to be able to receive payment within, you know, an order of like a week or two, so <clears throat> it got to be pretty dire, especially when nobody really knew what, what was going on. The narrative at the time was, "Is the Silicon Valley, and we're not going to bail out, um, you know, the the Silicon Valley um, fat cats." And you know, in in reality, I think it flipped. Um, <clears throat> one of the interesting points that I think uh, is worth calling out, and this was talked about, I think, by Tarun um, earlier, but uh, Elizabeth Warren seemed to change her tone very rapidly over the weekend. And I think you know part of that had to do with the fact that, that Silicon Valley Bank bought Boston Private, which is one of the larger providers of credit to the biotech ecosystem in Massachusetts, which is obviously a constituency of Elizabeth Warren. And so the second that it turned from, oh, I need to, you know, I'm not going to step up, kill the bank that is servicing Silicon Valley into, oh, my constituency is going to be directly impacted. And this isn't just tech, this is biotech and this is entrepreneurship and growth, you know, tone really changed pretty quickly. So <clears throat> I think, you know, it, the outcome is a lot more positive, but basically from Friday until Sunday afternoon, nobody knew what was going to happen on Monday. I actually have a legal question about that, just about, so if a company can't make payroll, just obviously people like getting paid. So it's very distress, distressing for a company when that can't happen. But is there a legal event that triggers and is essentially like a default on the bonds? Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, payroll is a protected asset uh, for employees. And if you're not able to, I mean, there, there are things that people have done historically where it's like, hey, listen, just wait this out with us. Like, we'll pay you in a month. We'll pay you 1.5 times what we're going to pay you in a month. Um, but you have to go employee by employee and make those um, make those deals specifically. I went yeah. to dinner on Saturday night with a buddy whose company had 100% of their assets, including like even their credit cards in SVB. And um, it depends on which state you're kind of HQ'd in, but you 
most boards have to get board insurance because if you don't get payroll as an employee, you can sue the living hell out of your, out of your board of directors. So that's what he was, they were, I mean, he was obviously worried about making payroll, but they were, they were worried about lawsuits actually coming from employees too, especially in a state like California. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Thank God Jason Calcanis stepped in. Our savior, our Lord and savior. Did you guys see the clip of him? On, on YouTube? Dude, the histrionics, just incredible. Like, what? <laughs> That's kind of the funniest part. Like, yeah, Silicon Valley Bank, like, in my mind, I think of it as a bailout just because when you're a bank and somebody comes to withdraw and you either don't have the money or you have to get shut down, you know, like, generally someone has to give you the money for you to restart operations. Someone has to bail you out. But, like, that kind of doesn't, you know, fully understand the context of where their balance sheet was, was which was in a bad place, but like, you're not looking at zeros. You're probably looking at like 60 to 90% recovery in time with people getting a 50% dividend the next week. Like that was like one of the first things that was known, but just the histrionics continued. And I think that is part of what, you know, a drove a lot of the response, you know, unironically in some ways and B, you know, forced a lot of other banks to have these same deposit run problems. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's very interesting to see people either think of this as a bailout or something that like you know the Federal Reserve is way overstepping their their jurisdiction on. Um, I think it's frankly a little bit of both. I I think it's tough. So just to to play devil's advocate there, I, I think it's tough to call this a bailout um, in, in the sense of like historically a bailout in my mind. And this is like definitionally we can we can talk about semantics, but. Um, Bailout implies that you're having the taxpayers flip the bill for this. And in reality, what this is, is all the other banks who put into the FDIC every year, they have an insurance fund. And I think it's a total of like $100 billion in the insurance fund. And that is what they're using as the short-term liquidity to be able to safeguard these assets for a year. So basically, the, the payers of this loss are are all the other banks. So all of the systemically important banks, you have to pay pro rata into this thing. So JP Morgan is probably the largest payer, I think, uh, of of covering, you know, the bill here. But, you know, it is it is kind of different in that it's not going to be something that's borne by the taxpayer. So I don't know, maybe semantics is semantics, but it, it does feel like it's very different from what we've seen historically from bailouts. I think the other thing that's important to note as well, the way the bailouts happened in 2008, that protected equ equity shareholders as well, right? So everyone kept their, I mean, you took a massive hit, but, you know, people kept their equity value, the management kept their jobs, you know, there were gigantic bonuses that were paid to these people. I think, you know, basically SVB is a, is a wipeout on equity and a lot of people lost, I'm not actually sure what's going to happen to everyone there, but I assume a lot of people are going to lose their jobs and any like the stock sales of the CEO, I think that's going to be clawed back. And I think it's sufficiently punitive to not, you know, create an environment for moral hazard, which is the worry when it comes to bailouts. So I'm kind of in that camp as well, that I, I think it's sufficiently punitive that I don't think people are going to look at this and say, yeah, we can be as risk-free as we want. I, I think what's interesting now is like in, in my mind, just the hole wasn't that big in Silicon Valley Bank. Like say in an alternate universe, we were just forced to work it out amongst ourselves. I still think the recovery percentage would have been extremely, extremely high. Juxtapose that to crypto where like Celsius and FTX claims are trading like 10 to 20 cents. It's it's just like a different ball game in terms of, you know, how severe the situation was versus what the histrionics were and what like the general cultural response has been. 
And now you look on CNBC and just like interested to hear your guys' perspectives. But Tom Lee this morning threw in the towel on being bullish. Like he is one of the most permable guys that you can possibly find. There's literally nobody bullish anymore. People are thinking this is a, a large scale banking crisis. And I would probably put odds on that not being the case. See, that's interesting. I feel like I could, I feel like now I, I'm feeling more bullish now than I have been in the last several months. I feel like what this event did is it maybe turned the Fed's uh, desire to keep hiking rates up, it turned it around. Well, so let, let's clarify bullish on what? Bullish on the US economy or bullish on asset prices? Yeah. Asset prices. Asset prices. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, that's been that case for a while. Right. It's like <laughs> bad news is good news. Bad news for the economy is good news for asset prices and vice versa. Yes, but it's like it's so dispersed now. So like let's talk about three different parts of or three different types of investors. Wall Street guys, super bearish. They're in the camp of this is the beginning of 2008. This is going to get really bad. There's going to be a credit freeze. And there's like some data that would suggest that is the case where yesterday, Cent and Dare tried to sell a billion dollars worth of subprime auto loans. And, you know, they make these loans and then they cut them up and syndicate them. There were no buyers on the other side. It was supposed to be led by Citigroup. So they just shut down the bond sale. Maybe it does like turn into like this large credit crisis. Frankly, like we're not the people to, to probably make that call. So you have those people. Then like think about tech people, like traditional Web 2.0 people. I think there's some excitement there that, you know, things are going to be moving in a more positive direction. The Fed might be more of a tailwind and, and certain things. And Michael and I were talking about this yesterday where it's like 10x next 12 months revenue. Things don't really work at that multiple, but if it's like 12x or 13x, like a lot of these growth companies start to be like public company candidates. So like they're marginally more bullish, but people have been deploying $100 billion in venture back companies for a decade. Like there's a lot of stuff that you need to sort out in that industry before you can really have like a wholesale, this is going to be a good thing type vibe. And then in crypto, like crypto just seems to be the sponge for all the excess liquidity where like people say that they're going to print 2 trillion and, and crypto prices as if that's going to go, you know, at least partially to them. You just don't have that same dynamic kind of anywhere else. I would say we're now the most bullish probably relative to anybody than we have been in the past two years. Like think about last year, everyone else was relatively like the real economy is okay, but crypto is, is going to you know really take a dive. And that was true. Now it's the opposite. There's another variable here too, which, you know, Tom Lee, obviously notable because he's a, he's a crypto fan and integrates the crypto economy into his analysis of where he's a bullish perspective or a bearish perspective. But <clears throat> the one thing that he focuses more on is the global uh, equities markets. And I think as you look at this in terms of what's going to happen for equities, let's assume that we start to head into you know more of a banking crisis. This is just the start. It's not the end. <clears throat> and we start to see actual cuts. And, and I saw somewhere, I think um, by end of 2023, uh, some of the forecasts are that there's actually going to be three to four cuts, let alone you know increases, like they're a net net three to four cuts by the end of this year. And that is, you know, pricing in a pretty serious recession, a pretty serious, you know, change of pace for, for the economy. And the way that economy and assets can relate is when you start to see earnings actually deflate relative to, you know, the price to earnings expectations, maybe the price to earnings ratio or, or the price to revenue, as Vance was saying, 10 to 12 actual revenue, um, maybe that goes up, you know, those metrics go up. But when revenue and earnings decrease more so than the multiples going up, you're going to start to see a deflation in asset values as well. Um, so I, I, I generally think like 
you can't say general bullish or bearish perspective. You have to talk about which subset of the markets or which subset of you know the equation you're you're really referring to. I think bullish crypto is definitely the sentiment coming out of this. Neutral equities, depending on how earnings and and revenue growth can can persist. A lot of these companies have been taking the the preemptive cuts. You know, you talk about Salesforce, Meta, Google. Everybody's making the cuts uh, as if you know this recession was coming from a from a year ago. Um, p- probably bullish bonds as well, just given that you're going to be able to see you know prices come back with decreasing yield or decreasing interest rates. I mean, wouldn't it be funny if like Silicon Valley Bank's bond portfolio, the one that's underwater right now, actually becomes closer to par if if yields you know go back down. Um, and so I think generally, like there are different subsets that that we have to talk about, but it does look like the market is pricing in that this is just the start, not the end. So this this graphic here, by the way, it's a little bit out of date. Um, it you know it's from earlier this week, March thirteenth. So even a couple of days ago. Um, but this is basically showing what Fed funds futures was pricing in uh, based on three different time periods, the 27th of January, uh, the 8th of March, and then the 13th of March. And you can see how much it's just a very uncertain market. So basically back in at the tail end of January, you know, there was a certain path for, for rates, which you can see in that black bar. You know, then just about a month later, you see the, the gray bars here and the market was pricing in a much more hawkish you know, trajectory for rates. This was after Powell kind of gave his speech. And now you can see from this week, the mark has drastically readjusted. And basically the thinking is, you know, this is kind of what Jason was saying. And I think this is what the market is trying to figure out is, are the, are the, is the stress in the banking system enough for the Federal Reserve to take its foot off the gas? And just because, you know, you brought up, you know, Liz Warren, I mean, she tweeted something out basically intimating that Powell had pushed things too far. And for whatever you think about Liz Warren, I think she's actually a pretty good zeitgeist of where the political opinion is sort of at. Um, and I, I think this is this is going to be the challenge for for markets is like inflation is still relatively hot, although PPI came in weak this week, which is a forward looking indicator. CPI was like dead at expectations. So then it's like, does the stress in the banking sector outweigh, you know, st- a still a six handle on CPI? And that's the question that I think markets are trying to look through and no one really knows. I completely agree. I think, you know, the evaluation here is what's going on uh, versus, you know, the inflation, what's going on in the banking crisis, what's going on with inflation. Um, And, you know, it's not the perfect benchmark in any way, shape or form, but we track the internally at framework. We look at the Fed now or the the now casting from the Cleveland Fed. Um, They've been overshooting expectations for the last three months and, um, Right now, the you know as of today, March sixteenth, um, now cast for uh, CPI is I think 0.3, uh, month over month, and that's really what matters. So, <clears throat> you know, it does look like March is going to be softer. Guys, can we pivot to talk about USDC? Because I want to get your guys' uh, take on that. Um, one thing that's been interesting is like you saw a lot of the large funds start dumping USDC. Um, so then Mike and I were having a conversation about like, okay, for, for a lot of these institutions that maybe have like tighter regulatory risks and like uh, larger compliance teams, are they like almost legally, I mean, legally they can hold it, but like, are, is USDC worth the risk of holding now? Um, and like, are they, will they maybe for a firm that used to hold 20% USDC, like, do they just say, eh, it's not worth it. Like, we'll go to, 
you know, from 20% to 2% USDC and just hold the rest in a, in a BNY account in cash. What, what, what's your guys' uh, like second order impact takeaways from, from this USDC depegging? I think most of the large holders of USDC are hyper profitable market makers within crypto. And so I would be surprised if they just said, you know, we can do this with less units of USDC. Um, I honestly don't think the long term impacts will be that big. They resolved it quickly. They resolved it in a weekend. They had a new transactional bank and then they had a new cash custodian by Monday. That's like pretty impressive just from a, a risk and operational standpoint. And Jeremy Allaire is on uh, CNBC and he's you know pleading his case. And it seems increasingly clear that the banking system is turning towards crypto, not against it. Like I think they tried to basically kill crypto with all these banks. I've said this before. I think it's going to backfire. Um, so I'm, I'm like pretty, you know, like we hold a lot of USDC. We hold USDC personally. Um, we're definitely not selling our exposure. I think you could see that capital come back on chain in the form of, you know, maybe things like Ondo T-bills or different real world assets. There's also the point where, you know, yields are not where they used to be. Like that's not going to be as big of a selling point going forward. And so I, that's not a USDC point, but like things like makers, you know, printing die and giving it to different uh, custodians to buy T-bills. That's probably not going to be that interesting a strategy in the next year. After the next, like, why do you personally, or why does Framework hold USDC when you could just put it in cash? What is like, what is the reason? There? I mean, what type of cash? Bank account cash, Coinbase USD. Uh, if you put it in the bank account, you have to transfer it back. You know, like banking is, as you know, right now is a little bit touch and go. Like, not super excited to put more money into regional banks. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why you would want to hold USDC right now. I think this weekend has kind of made USDC the de facto bank of crypto right now. Because like if you're, you know, an average startup or a company and your money's in Signature or Silicon Valley Bank or Silvergate, it's probably safer to just have it in USDC relative to those options at this point. And just one, one quick point of clarification, you know, like <clears throat> we are, as we've talked about, a qualified custodian with the SEC, which means that, or sorry, we are a registered investment advisor with the SEC. We have to keep like our assets news. at our, at our qualified <laughs> custodian. We are definitely not a qualified custodian. Um, but the the difference there is, you know, keeping, keeping money in a banking account is fine. That's definitely a qualified custodian. Um, keeping USDC within Coinbase Prime or Anchorage also satisfies the qualified custodian role, um, as at least as of now. Um, if we were to not, you know, be holding assets in the Prime account or in the in the qualified custodian account, that's totally different. And so now it's a question of like, okay, what's the safest place? If if we have issues with banks over the over the level of 250k, you know, where's the best place to keep it? And, and so that, that I think is, you know, a tough question to answer, uh, especially when you've got, you know, a, a regulatory obligation to, uh, you know, to the SEC. So th there, there is a lot of like, you know, interesting kind of game theory that we've been thinking through as well. Safest place to keep it is in Tether. Didn't you see it was rock solid whole weekend? <laughs> Didn't even <Yeah>. move. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Crazy how that happened. I, 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 I think USDC has gotten a lot stronger as a result of this, this weekend, not weaker. Mm. Yep. And, and just to like, I know we're, we're talking about USDC. I, I, I completely agree. Um, I think the depegging was in, was an anomaly, but was also a feature, not a bug. Um, as we talked about the, the other thing 
that I think is worth talking about that kind of got swept up in this whole process is, is the closure of Signature. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, you know, I don't necessarily, I, I, I have not, at least uh, to date, worn a tinfoil hat on this podcast uh, yet. But uh, my tinfoil hat perspective is, um, and it came out today, Reuters said that they had two sources suggesting and uh, that whoever buys Signature Bank is going to have to agree to not continue the crypto practice once they buy the bank. And the, the whole rumor over the weekend was, uh, or on Sunday, was why are you targeting the number two largest crypto-specific bank, which had SIGNET, which is the equivalent of the Silver Gate Exchange Network, where you had real-time payments in and out. So that, that was number one. Um, and then Tom Emmer today actually had a very interesting perspective, which he shared, which was the same time that Signature Bank was closed, the U.S. or the, the Fed was talking about how the fact that they are going to be releasing the FedNow payment network later this summer. And is this a case where you have the government competing against the private sector for the service that they're going to be providing for instant payments? So FedNow is going to be instant payment settlement with U.S. dollars, supposedly. And USDC was in, in the payments that are happening in real time within the crypto ecosystem were facilitated by Signature uh, as well as Silvergate before that happened. But kind of an interesting perspective just to think, well, is this something where it was a targeted attack on Signature Bank? Um, Blockchain Association, I, I believe, has already filed a FOIA request. Um, so we'll, we'll ultimately get to the bottom of this. Um, and I, I just thought that it was really interesting to see um, confirmation of the rumor that the crypto bank or the crypto business at the bank seems to be the exact component that was in the crosshairs here. This seems like a classic move from our government where they're like, yeah, like we're going to release Fed now. You're never going to have to talk to a banker again. None of your wires are going to get flagged again. It's going to be just like USDC. It's like, no, it's like not the same thing at all. Being able to have permissionless payments versus having slightly faster ones. If that is the case, that is such a folly. Just to pivot to a little bit of crypto stuff as well. It looks like we have a date for Shanghai. April 12th. April 12th. Nice. Nice. Block rip scoop. Let's go, baby. That's phenomenal. The the last point that I would just uh, on the signature bank thing, um, there is one of the, one of the members of the board was a guy named uh, Barney Frank. And Barney Frank is one of the guys who is in right in the name Dodd Frank, which was the sort of sweeping regulate regulatory overhaul that came to the banking system after great financial crisis, he was on the board of Signature, and he intimated that he didn't understand why Signature got closed. And just just to, as, a, as a differentiator for how Signature got treated versus other banks that were, you know, had their stock trading in a distressed way, which Credit Suisse is still doing, but, you know, First Republic wasn't made to close down, right? It's what's happening there is that, uh, first of all, deposits were guaranteed at SVB, and and then it looks like First Republic, there are reports today, we're recording this on, on Thursday, but it looks like they're going to be acquired by a larger bank. And that's it feels like that's what should have happened with Signature. So it's it's kind of unclear why this was just closed right out of the blue without with no explanation. What is that? Is that five now? Six? What's the count? Signature, of Silver Silicon Valley... First Republic, I guess Credit Suisse would be five. I mean, Mike, it, it's really not clear. <laughs> I don't have my tinfoil hat, so I can't say. 
<laughs> Listen, I, I, I think uh, it, it feels like all of the tea leaves are pointing in one direction. And I also think that they try to take a shot. We found other banks and banking partners, and this business is going to go somewhere. It's not like, oh, you turn off the bank and like the business dies. We can't find another one. It's like, we've got backups. And we've got a lot of others that are waiting to take over the deposits. I mean, what was what was the number that there was uh, $15 billion of additional deposits into Bank of America? Uh, like when, when all this went down, like someone's going to want to take on that business. And, uh, and so, I, you know, you're going to take a shot. Best not miss. Did you guys read the New York Mag article with Barney Frank? Yeah. Did you read that article? I haven't read it yet. I've read part of it. It's, I mean, it's worth it. Like, they, I mean, they never admitted that Signature was insolvent. They claimed that Signature didn't give them sufficient data, which was the reason they wanted to nationalize the bank. Like, it's just, it's just a bizarre, it's like, you don't, you don't shut down the bank uh, by not because they didn't provide sufficient data. It's, it's, signature was a publicly traded company, no? He admitted, he said that Signature was ready and able to open on Monday and that it probably would have been fine. I was like, why? Are, what are you saying? <laughs> so if you're a shareholder in that company, like, what what do you do? Do you band together and form a class action? And I, guess, I would assume oh, yeah. class yeah. action lawsuit. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I guess. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of funny that, like, I, I did read that part about the bad data or the sloppy data or whatever. It's kind of just like, are you guys really keeping all this shit in, like, Google spreadsheets or something? Like, this, this is kind of what why. What is this, Alameda? I uh, know, like, yeah, a Google spreadsheet of my balance sheet. <laughs> I do have sympathy for Barney Frank, but he also was very anti-crypto. And then his pro-crypto bank got confiscated by regulators. Like, I'm sorry that that didn't work out for you, but you kind of had some bad karma. You guys want to talk about the announcement of the announcement? <laughs> the biggest uh, web th- the, the biggest crypto news to happen in the last seven days. Yeah, well, we, you know, talking here, obviously, about the Arbitrum airdrop. So there was a video that the guy released that confirmed what a lot of people already suspected, uh, that there's going to be an airdrop for Arbitrum. And I think that's scheduled to go live. Uh, The the target dropped, it would be March 23rd. So next week, Uh, the total supply for Arbitrum is going to be 10 billion. Um, and the airdrop, the allocation is 1.15 billion for the airdrop, so 11.5%. Um, and then I think there's a there's some amount that's also allocated to uh, there's 1.1% that's going to be allocated to DAOs, like DAOs, uh, you know, protocols that built on top of um, on top of Arbitrum. And then there's a, a good portion that's allocated to kind of investors, uh, the team, and the community. Um, or the treasury, the treasury rather. Any, any like, it's hard. It's hard to know because we, we don't know valuation yet. Any, any just thoughts on, I guess, how the uh, allocation was structured or the announcement, the announcements or whatever. I, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's always kind of funny when you go back to think about like where did just like common um, business best practice best practices stem from, and you know, like you think about a four year vesting schedule for most employees at, at, at companies, like where does that come from? Uh, it, it happens to come from like, it's some weird like employment rule, but that just became like commonplace. Anyways, what I'm trying to get at is um, somehow, for some reason, Uniswap decided to to do an airdrop for 
And it seems like the new norm is that give or take 12% to the community or to like users in a retroactive airdrop is the, is the norm of like what people target now. Um, like that was my first reading of this. I was like, without even looking at it, it was like, oh, let me guess 12% airdrop. And of course that's what it is. Um, so I think that was kind of one of the interesting points, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see how they distribute it. I think, um, OP just as like a direct competitor comparison to Arbitrum had a pretty novel way of like, not only just like the token distribution, but also the token, um, governance model. Um, so I'll be very curious to see kind of how this all plays out in, in, um, uh, in relation to that. But, um, yeah, I think is it this all be great. Or is it all like immediately tradable? No, I don't think so. Not the uh, not the there amount is, that's allocated to the team. Oh, I'm just right. talking about the airdrop itself. Oh. The, the airdrop itself, I believe, is. I don't know if the DAOs are or how that would work. Um, kind of the same thing for OP where you had to like submit a request for OP distribution to the, the DAO treasury that was building on top of Optimism. Uh, but I think the airdrop to users will be tradable immediately. I mean, number one, huge wealth creation event. If it's 10% of the supply and it's probably going to trade between, you know, who knows if it's Optimism, I guess it'd be like one to one and a half dollars. That's $1.5 billion of wealth creation right there. And let's see if it stays there. Um, that'll go into reinforcing the crypto economy it also just paints a huge target on these L2s back. Like everyone is going to launch an L2 if the prize is 10 to $20 billion. Like it, it kind of makes sense. I have a question for you guys that I'm quite sure I'm going to end up looking stupid on, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, I'm trying to think through like one of the big differences, it seems like to me with the funding model of a protocol versus the funding model of let's say an early stage startup is the sequential series of equity raises versus on like a the launch of a token you just have one like some number that's you know into infinity so we were talking the other day about like circulating supply or market cap versus fully diluted valuation and i'm trying to like reason this out in my head because one of the differences here right is the what they're essentially trying to do with the fully diluted valuation is you're trying to because you're only doing a capital raise one time you're basically trying to parse out right? Like this is the amount of capital that I'm going to need to raise over the total course of the life of this protocol, as opposed to with a company, you'd be like, all right, I'm going to raise $10 million in my series A, maybe at a hundred million dollar valuation. And then I'm going to raise 20 million, in my series B $200 million valuation isn't ultimately like pick some period in time, but the fully diluted valuation would be like whatever the valuation is at your series D and then like the total amount of capital that you raise. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? It's I'm trying to like reason this out, but how do you guys kind of think about that? It's just a weird, I've, I've tried to think about it a lot, but it's, it's difficult to, to wrap your head around. We've only seen one protocol live through the whole life cycle of raising capital and a fixed supply token and getting to a point where the network is profitable and either the protocol is complete, like you don't need continual rounds of funding. So you're not like continually depleting the, in this case, the Ethereum Foundation's treasury or you have the asset be so profitable that you can stake it and earn yield and it doesn't just dilute everyone out, you know, in perpetuity. And so like, we've only seen this happen once. And this is kind of why, I, at least I think that if you're going to be a protocol, you need to have like an end date where either the maintenance costs go down significantly, or you don't need to iterate on the protocol anymore. 
But, you know, like, I think the, the crux of your point is, how did they just print $20 billion? It's only, you know, 10% circulating. What happens to this money? Um, we've seen very, very, very few successful cases of people being able to, over time, grow into these valuations on fundamental metrics. It's not impossible. And I think we're going to see more people do it as we find out what the right playbooks are to Michael's point about where do best practices come from. Um, but, you know, especially for these L2s, and we're an investor in Optimism who's a competitor, but like the value capture angle, not the same as Ethereum. It feels like a remnant of Bitcoin, honestly, right? Like that's that's why we all do these token, these hard caps, one-time launch um, or fi fixed supply launches. Um, and it feels like a remnant of, of just Bitcoin's 21 million cap. Um, but I think it's something that folks should probably actually reconsider is like, does it make more sense to raise like a traditional, you know, series A, series B, B, series C, instead of just doing one, one big drop at as high of a valuation as possible. But, but, but like fundamentally or like tactically, how would that happen? Because you basically have a tradable value for this. I mean, it, it Oh, cause once you release one, the token one time, then you have a, then you have, then it's liquid, then it gets priced and then you can't. Yeah. I see what you're saying. What, what you see people do is they bail themselves out with inflation. If it's like, if you need additional tokens, okay, they go back to the treasury. Okay, the treasury gets approached by somebody. Okay, we're going to sell more. So like, you do have a lot of the corporate model that exists in Web 2 in Web 3. But like, we, we've really never run an experiment where an early stage company prints a $20 billion full of due valuation, gives $2 billion to the community, and then tries to build the activation to bring them onto the L2. Because like, that's really the reward you get for doing this is your DEXs get TVL, your games are incentivized to come there. You can spin up a studio, an incubator, like, but it's a finite advantage because you're fully diluted and circulating are, are going to converge one-to-one -one eventually. And you better have utility, profitability, or something to keep people interested in the project. Um, but that is like probably a two to four year down the line thing that they'll have to go through. Because once the investors unlock and once the team unlocks, you know, everyone is on equal footing. Um, and that can, and it has changed a lot of the dynamics of these networks over time. Mm. That, that to your point, Mike, is one of the things that we evaluate a lot, yeah. which is if you're, if you're looking at the value of a, uh, sorry, if you're looking at the market cap, uh, versus the total fully diluted value, those are two very important metrics to look at just because when you have 80% of the supply that still has, or in this case, 87% of the supply that still has to be unlocked that's a major variable that you have to deal with, you have to account for. And that's something that you're going to have as, you know, a changing of the, the the market dynamics of that token, you know, over the lifetime. And and like the project, so like ETH was the first one to get to default profitability and, and basically the need to, you know, if there was some maintenance, do it, but like it wasn't sucking all the resources out of the protocol via dumping tokens. The next ones that are doing it are all the DeFi protocols. Like, I can't express how good it is to see all the DeFi OGs, Maker, Synthetics, uh, Curve, um, Uniswap, Lido. Like, Synthetics, what do you think? Going to be profitable this year, Michael? Like, they made, I think, $2 million in fees last week. And, and there was a lot of liquidations and fees and volume. Lido is probably going to get 50 to $100 million. Uniswap, we'll see if they turn on the fee switch. Maker, I'm, like, a little bit more suspect on because they're just, like, taking, you know, printed internet money and giving it to people to buy T-bills with. But, like... You're starting to see the second generation of companies figure this out after Ethereum. 
And I think that is like wildly positive because that's like when you saw Ethereum kind of like re-rate to Bitcoin back in, I think, like 2020, because it was like 0.03 for a long time. It was because the network had fundamentals. So I'm hopeful that that continues. And it's, it's awesome to see the first generation of people that are like really diehard DeFi people actually making real businesses out of it. Good, good to see synthetics specifically. Good, nice all week for synthetics. Dude, it's, it's been a comeback, arc. Been, and like yeah. fucking yeah. bumpy and you know crazy and like we yeah. were one of the first protocols to get. Remember the Korean won hack, Michael? Someone printed a trillion dollars of Korean won on synthetics and tried to hold the protocol hostage. This was like four years ago. You got to get a screenshot of this. And like uh, this was the <laughs> first time Michael, Michael, I've this stuff. It was like the world was ending, but there's been so many twists and turns and. Do you remember when people were front-running the Oracle? But now it's like the system's fast. It's cheap. It has a lot of different pairs. It has perps. It has it's powering options. Like the the real diehard people that win the niches are going to absolutely do phenomenal. Like well, and it's, and, it's awesome to see. And, and just to hammer this point home, here's a prediction. Um, I, I think where DeFi 1.0 uh, was all about TVL. What we're going to start to see is that DeFi 2.0, which was has yet to really kind of hit the fever pitch is uh, all going to be about cash flows and re-rating to cash flows is going to be a really important market efficiency that you can compare it against ethereum ethereum will be the you know the benchmark essentially but you're going to look at lido you're going to look at maker you're going to look at synthetics uniswap and compare cash flows on cash flows and i think a lot of the like DeFi llamas and token terminals are already moving in this direction as like the best point of comparison but I think that that becomes the new metric of, of uh, DeFi 2.0. Now, this might vary, uh, you know, protocol to protocol, but the the metric that I've sort of heard used there as one to pay attention to is the dollar produced per dollar of TVL that you have for it. So for every dollar of TVL that you have, how much revenue are you able to produce off of it? And then you subtract the operating cost and that's your, your cash flow. Just depends if TVL is really like a metric that you're looking for. It should just be cash flows, right? And if they're super inefficient cash flows, like a bank, like something that looks like a bank, probably just get valued at like a book value or like a lower multiple. But Well, I, I think, Mike, you're right. And you can compare those, but you can only compare those across different business models. Like yeah. you, you, can't, you can't compare a der derivatives exchange to like a lending protocol because those are going to have wildly different TVLs. But the cash flows may be the same, just like a, a Lido staking protocol versus a a GMX, like those are just going to be two very, very different ecosystems with different metrics. But the one that you can measure is what's the cost, what's the fully diluted market cap, and what's the cash flows. Yeah. Well, the um, when you uh, just one clarifying question, actually, when you say cash flows, you know what exactly are you describing? Is that net profitability or like, or because cash flow to me means like dollars in and out. Net profitability, net of incentives. So mm. like. You look at things like synthetics, like there really are not that many incentives driving the growth. And like, I'm not going to pick on any other individual derivatives exchanges, but like, if you look at some of the other ones, like it's like incentives on many days are higher than what the fees they're generating are. Yeah. So like, that's the other thing you really care about, especially as, you know, to our earlier conversation, a lot of these incentives wind down as the circulating and fully diluted market caps converge. Like those are just very expensive dollars to, to now allocate to growth programs and things like that. So I've got a question for you because the reason I uh, maybe have heard this, this particular metric, like the amount of TVL that it takes to produce $1 is because I'd be looking at kind of scalability of the business because let's just take a business where like, let's just say TVL is like directionally the driver of how much revenue a protocol can generate. 
if there's a protocol that has a billion in TVL and you're able to generate, you know, let's say $50 million in revenue, that looks very different to me than the same business that generates 50 million in revenue, but you need 25 billion of TVL in order to do that. Because to me as an investor, I'm like, geez, like there's just a limited amount that that revenue stream can really scale then. Totally. But but that's kind of like saying, okay, let's compare Apple's top line revenue with Google's. And Apple, you've got to factor in the actual gross margin of the physical products that they're selling, whereas Google, gross margin is going to be 80%. Or like, let's compare that with the GMV of Airbnb and say, okay, like you've got a marketplace dynamic, net revenue is going to be whatever blended like 18, 19% of that GMV, whatever their fees are. But like you see, like you have to take each individual business model and say, okay, let's break it down and compare apples to apples. Um, and yeah, sure, like Google is probably one of the best business models ever invented in humankind because of the the fact that you have an 80% gross margin. That's going to be a component of this evaluation process as well. Do you guys want to talk about the billion dollar CZ investment? Little, little note that he dropped. Oh, wait, sorry. Actually, what, one one thing to, to mention as well is uh, in addition to the airdrop, Arbitrum actually announced, first of all, that there's going to be a DAO. And then there's they also announced something called Arbitrum Orbit. So Arbitrum Orbit is basically their solution for that will allow developers to build layer threes on top of Arbitrum, um, which I think is is pretty like this. This I mean, we talked kind of about uh, we've talked about the app chain thesis and idea. Uh, we've been covering it in this last season of Bell Curve as well. But this seems like a something that looks kind of similar actually to the OP. Um, optimism sort of solution of these like app chain type environments. So we've, we've had so many projects look at Coinbase and Arbitrum and be like, that's what I want to do. Make an L3 on Coinbase or use the OP bedrock stack to, or sorry, use an L3 on Arbitrum or use bedrock OP stack to build on Coinbase. Like it feels like that is now the path of least resistance. If you want your own app chain, just like the tooling is that good. Not that, you know, anything else is happening, but um for Cosmos and Tendermint, like those are still nine month, 12 month development cycles from what we can tell. So, you know, these products are just going to go to where it's easiest for them to build. And it looks increasingly like it's going to be. Yeah, Mike, you, you just did a whole, I mean, season on app chain thesis. Like, how are you thinking with Arbitrum, OP stack, Coinbase, Coinbase's base? Like, how do you think about where, where apps want to build? I think it just depends on, on what's important to you. I, I do still think like the, the thing that you get on in the Cosmos arena that you you can't get building on like an, a layer three or something like that is you get full sovereignty, right? So when you own everything from the nodes, uh, the the validators all the way up to the application, like you control every every part of of that. Um, so you own a lot of flexibility. I think that the challenge there is you don't have a natural or obvious source of distribution. That's kind of the challenge. And then you're also you make the entire stack of your product subject to Governance, which in some cases can be really good, but it's also a lot of surface area of governance. And one thing that like, to be honest, I am still kind of thinking through is maybe this was kind of Jason, what you and I explored in season two, but it's like maybe governance is really optimized to only only be very good for one very thin layer of decision making. And then there are going to be companies that build products like wallets, like maybe, you know what I mean? Because like a company is much more centralized. Um, and it makes sense that a company might build a wallet, 
but maybe you want the underlying financial architecture underneath that to be decentralized and less prone to uh you know have you know perceived ne- neutrality or or not be able to be impacted by governments that might not like how the how the software functions so real time news update uh same, seems like uh 30 billion do- 30 billion dollars uh coming from 11 different banks are going to be deposited into first republic bank so probably not going to be a sale but going to be a backstopping maybe or just a, a partnership where $30 billion is going to flow into First Republic as new bank deposits from other banks. It's basically like, it seems like everybody's getting together and just like locking arms and being like, we got this. <laughs> these, these are these are weird times though, because like bailing out, I saw Silicon Valley Bank tweeted out today or yesterday. They're like, there is no single safer place to keep or transfer your deposits than SVB now. We're fully insured with no limits and no caps. So actually, technically, they're kind of right because they have unlimited FDIC insurance right now. Um, they the, they are one hundred percent correct. Yeah, it's just a weird. I, I was all for like bailing them out or backstopping whatever you want to call it, but like now the unintended consequences. I don't know. I, I saw Brex did that like two hundred million dollar thing with them. Like something about that just feel. I'm like, oh, there's no consequences. Like you just. You, oh, what? What are you? What are you talking? What are you talking about? No, con- I mean, keep in mind, like the so management team is out. They're all fired. They're going to get their bonuses and their stock sales probably clawed back. You got Roe on on Meet the Press or wherever he was this morning talking about doing that. You've got an entire wipeout of all the bondholders, all the stockholders. They're they're completely fleeced down to zero. Like what you're effectively saving here is. Uh, you're trying to have some residual value for the employees at the company who were not the ones making the, the decisions to maybe have a continuation of this business. Everybody else who had deep incentives to be aligned with the future progress of Silicon Valley Bank itself, they're gone. I, I actually think that you know it, it's a it's a contemplation that we had, which is like we have bank. I mean, we're looking for other banks and we're working. We have probably three or four banks for each one of our different funds. Silicon Valley Bank was one of them. But if we had to put assets somewhere, it's kind of a weird, perverse situation to to your exact point. It now has 100% FDIC insurance. It just seems like weird market incentives that SVB is now the safest bank in the United States right now. I've got I've got another. The, honestly, this situation makes me ask a question, but it's a different one, which is if the Fed and the FDIC are just going to backstop everything, why do we need a commercial banking system? Why do we need a Fed? It's just going to follow the two-year treasury. We can just use that. Like we can, if we're doing layoffs in tech, like I think we should streamline a lot of the financial infrastructure as well. It's just, I, I, I honestly, the libertarian side of me would have preferred no bailout. Um, the part of me that has startups and and you know had money in Silicon Valley Bank obviously preferred that, but they've created this knock-on consequence where, like we had to bail out the banking system in 2008. You know, what happens if we need to bail out the Federal Reserve when all of these banks start failing? It it really is like this moral hazard type of scenario where Ken Griffin was saying that, you know, we shouldn't have bailed them out. It wasn't that bad. They could have sorted it amongst themselves. Maybe that is true. It wouldn't have led to this feeling of like, cool, we have like the permanent bank backstop now. But what happens if that ever goes the other way? That's that's kind of uh, also, keep in mind this this implicit backstop only lasts for twelve months. It's not like this is a perpetual, forever thing. 
Temporary right. government just programs. Just like the reverse repo facility. That was a temporary government program 10 years ago. Just for the one package of COVID stimulus that we needed that led to four more. Like For sure. <laughs> sure. They're going to be reducing the size of the Fed's balance sheet any day now. Any day. For sure. They can't walk. I think that's, that is the point, though. They, they, they can never walk any of this stuff back. Once, once. I mean, together. this is a this is this is a private company that's going to have to find a private solution, and if they don't, there won't be any incentive to continue on and bash stop this this business. Not to mention, like who and who in the right mind, if there isn't a future outcome here uh, and isn't searching for other employment opportunities that currently works there. Yeah, but like th- these problems are going to continue to happen. Like I, I was reading this report that said the uh, social security and, and pension and many of the pension plans are expected to be insolvent in nine years, assuming no recession. That is going to happen in four years. Like you can't just keep kicking the can down the road. You need to solve the problems before they happen or else you're just going to get this thing where everyone perpetually gets bailed out. And that is like the scenario where eventually you do need to backstop the Fed. But with what? By diluting the American shareholder, holders of the currency. That's raising I think that's- taxes. You know, cutting federal programs, backstop, like or or they not, like you know, you're not going to do that. So I don't know. Maybe it's that's so just like a little unpalatable to do. But I think it's you know, like the supply of money is going to increase if this is going to be the tax that you take with every single crisis. And that's why you know, like crypto is is uh like that's why I feel good. These are the things that as a fund manager you wait for, you know. We raise a fund, things really kind of fall apart. You really get a shot at something that's low and then the Fed starts to ease. Like there are so many qualifications and caveats that you can put around it where if the economy really falls apart, that that's bad. But this is kind of the setup that you wait for, even though it's full of like moral hazard and a lot of these institutions going the wrong way, in my opinion, at least. I have a, um, uh, can, can you guys uh, give us your opinion on, because obviously when when things were falling apart over the weekend with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, crypto was ripping. Uh, and this is the charge was sort of led by by Bitcoin and Bitcoin pumped. It's basically just pumped since Ank, I don't have the chart in front of me, but since Saturday, it's been on a tear and it's right around twenty five thousand uh, now. Um, I, I say Bitcoin has been leading because Bitcoin has been. Yeah, I think it's been the most print. It se- seems to move first and the ETH BTC ratio is going the other way for the first time in a little while. Um, could you maybe just talk about like why you think crypto reacted the way that it did. Is this a macro story or something else? The original narrative the industry was built on. And you have a resurgence of that. You have all the applications, adoption, brand, distribution, all that progress you've made in a decade plus. And it's like, you know, we've already been through our version of, you know, hell last year. Like that's when we, we really took it on the chin, like Luna and FTX and Celsius and Voyager. And now it's like we were kind of first people in makes sense that you're going to be first people out. And on the ETH BTC ratio, I just think, frankly, it's Shanghai. I don't know how much supply comes online, but the threat of that coming is is enough to spook the market. And CZ is buying, and I think he likes Bitcoin more than ETH, frankly. The, uh, not to maybe speak to specifically this, but I think, you know, just like forecasting out, um, one of the questions we got from one of our LPs who happened to be in the office yesterday uh, was like, what's the catalyst that like sends this back into a bull market? Like, what are the things that we're looking for? And, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about was just, frankly, ETH being over like 2K. The second that you get that, what it does is it creates this reflexive flywheel of like, 
okay, the value effect or the wealth effects of like, okay, now it's the, the primary capital asset, you know, things like Lido are priced in terms of ETH. So you're going to have more revenue that's flowing to those types of ecosystems. People are paying for things in ETH. And historically, we've seen the, the quantity of ETH as ETH goes up spent in the Ethereum ecosystem increase as ETH goes up. Uh, and so I think there's also this element of like, once you de-risk and move past some of these big, you know, overhangs like Shanghai or, you know, Mount Gox or any of the things that we have on the horizon for 2023, like there, there will be, you know, a real big, you know, kind of like realization that we've moved past all the risks. The banks are blowing themselves up. Interest rates are probably coming down, you know, unclear about future prospects of the global or just U.S. specific equities. Like where is you know, a good place to put some cash right now. Okay, to Vance's point, maybe it's the place that got literally hit the hardest in 2022 and is showing the greatest signs of life right now in terms of activity and, and revenue and cash flows that we've been talking about. So I think, you know, the, I would actually say I was kind of surprised that it didn't move more over the weekend. Um, but but I think the reason why it could be just the fact that we're waiting for some of these de-ristings. It's a good time to be in crypto. Good time to be alive and in crypto because, you know, you forget, but like all of the people got taken out last year. Like yeah. Yeah, one of the funny parts of the, of the, of the rip was like Suzu was back to bull posting. <laughs> just like, <laughs> like some of it, like, I feel like I'm just not smart enough to get, but like some of it just seems like indecipherable, just like gibberish, but he's back. And I think that, uh, that tells you something. We've had enough time now where he's failed, started a new company, and come back. Like, I think enough time has been spent in the penalty box, not for him specifically, but like for the industry writ large. Yeah, he's got some more time. He's blocked me. Yeah, he blocked me. I don't know what I. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I've been blocked. I wasn't being I mean, supportive I'll enough in his time of need. Listen, not going to lie, like the other element that I, I think will be a huge just de-risking equivalent moment is the second that we finally get resolution to this whole FTX SBF lawsuit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which when is slated to start where that trial concludes. It's going to be like, mm-hmm. tell them, <laughs> tell them. <laughs> preach. Dude, that is going to be a shit show of a trial, uh, of a trial too. Where, yeah. where is Sam Trabuco? Where is he? You have you to just imagine take the, take the sea in his in his yacht. I um, I don't know. All of that needs to resolve. We need to get to the point where like that is fully put to bed, and then I think also like picture SBF over the weekend. Like everyone thinks I'm so bad. Like look at these fucking banks. You know they're blowing up now. Not going to save him, but I'm sure he like felt. Well, a little did you see better. he came out yesterday and he's like FTX should cover all of my expenses related to my trial. So I feel like he's like he kind of tried to seize this opportunity to say, to like come back in and say a little thing. Founder, victim, you know, like just like yeah. he's trying to hey play guys, that. Can I can I expense this? Can I expense this? <laughs> no, is Don't this an expensable? Not expense that. <laughs> yeah, Michael, at that point that you were making when when ETH is above two K or whatever, I do think a lot of what drives the the kind of mania in crypto during the bull cycles is kind of like good old fashioned money illusion, actually, like if you kind of denominate a good part of your investment portfolio in ETH, and suddenly that does a 10x, I mean, you're sort of playing with like 
casino chip. It's the same effect that you get when you go into a casino, right? You win a bunch of money and that's why they convert it into chips because it doesn't seem real, right? This is every anecdote that you hear about people are okay buying their NFTs in when it's denominated in ETH. But as soon as you see the dollar price, it's like awful, you know, it's like turn off my screen. I think that's what drives an enormous amount of the reflexivity. Did you really just compare... Head to Vegas this weekend, by the way. So, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say I will. Uh, I'll let you know how those chips fare how for the, us. Um, where you staying? But the no uh, same. The it's win? the abstraction principles. But I was. I'm not trying. To compare, right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. The only place to. Yeah. Th- th- thanks for comparing my ETH tokens. No. To no. That's chips. not what I. Uh, <laughs> psychological effect. That's what I meant. Um, no. Alice, would you be? Would you be sus? <laughs> what did you say? We were staying at Caesar's Palace. Would you be sus? There's only one place to stay. It's the wind, baby. It is. It is. That's the best. And that's and that's where we're staying. Um, I think the uh, the other element here is just like there's the psychological effect, but then there's also just like the capital effect. And we're actually starting to see some of these, you know, narratives and promises of DeFi 1.0 shifting into DeFi 2.0 that we've literally been waiting for for three years now <clears throat> actually come to fruition. We're like, you want to trade X, Y, or Z? Great. There's that. You know, there's like legit betting markets for sports on chain now that have like serious liquidity. Like there, there, there are like financial services that exist left, right, and center. And it's not just Maker. It's not just Uniswap. It's not just spot trading anymore. Um, like there, there is a, a full-fledged financial ecosystem that you can access now if you have ETH or if you have, you know, assets in that environment. DGen Spartan once called for a three-year bear market. Not once, many times. Uh, and he would he even have a progress bar where he would update, like, you're in month four of the 36-month bear market. <laughs> when you're in month four, that's a tough thing to hear <laughs> from DGen Spartan. And, like, pretty crazy, but it honestly was about three years from, like, the first hype cycle of 2020 and Comp and Synthetics and Ave to present day in 2023. We've kind of lived through the ups and the downs, but now it just feels like they're figuring it out. So one of the one of the challenges with that particular time frame is I think it's pretty easy. I'd be curious like how you guys talk about things internally at framework. Like I think it's pretty easy to you can go to someone and say, Hey, I know it sucks right now, but just like eyes on the prize. Like one year from now or nine months, like things are gonna get a lot better. Like three years is just a long period of time. You know, that's uh so I, I'd just be curious about how you guys talk about that or message things internally or like how you've like motivated people through bear markets basically well not, not everyone's gonna make we it take them to I vegas mean, <laughs> <laughs> not, not everyone's gonna make it is the first one you know in the venture yeah. business you're lucky if 10 percent in traditional vc work out in in crypto it's more like i would say 30 40 percent just there were a lot less startups to back um, are you talking about portfolio companies, Mike? Or are you talking about employees at Framework? Kind of both. Kind of both. I mean, like, we tell people, like, if you're the number one in your niche, you can still be a billion-dollar company, even at the depths of the bear market, even if it gets 50% worse. But, you know, the laws of gravity still apply to everyone. You need to have a product that has product market fit. You need to be able to both create and extract value from it for yourself. Um, and a lot of it is just, like, frankly, like, the grind, of coming in every single day, trying to make it work, banging your head against the wall, iterating, 
hiring people, firing people, feeling good, feeling bad. But like at the end of the day, if you don't have like that founder energy of like, I'm going to crush this thing come hell or high water, it's just probably never going to work out. And so that's one of the things that we look for and, and try to filter for is people that can work with us in that way. And you may not start with the same business that you finish with. You may not start with the same team that you finish with, but like there is usually a path if you're willing to grind. Um, and that's mainly the the sentiment. And, you know, I think the motto generally around timing is like, give it a year. If it looks bad, it's probably not as bad as it's going to be. Uh, but if you give it a year, things are a good, good chance that they're going to look a little bit better. And that's enough to hopefully get people going. The other thing I'd add, totally agree with everything Van said. The other thing I'd add is like, okay, let's take DJ and Spartan's three-year projection. He made that, I think, in like 2021. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that's kind of, he made it like kind of at the height of, of you know, I think it was summer 2021 is when he started talking about this. Um, and so, you know, what we're really talking about here is summer 2024, where he's identifying, okay, that's the end of the three-year bear market. Well, he was right for the first year. And the first year was just about, you know, and sure, he missed a lot of the pump at the end of 2021, but he was right about there being a dump in 2022. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it definitely, is this the tweet? I mean, it, it definitely is... Um, uh, yeah, it, basically like the, the point I'm trying to make is, um, there are also this, there, there is also this effect in markets where markets will front run you by a year. So like the outcome of whatever it is that's going to happen is actually going to get pulled forward because markets are going to react faster. So like if it's a 36 month process, what you're really talking about is like 24 months. And, you know, if we really take the math and figure out where we think things are going to be like probably this summer, we're going to move past a lot of these de-risks. And, and I think, you know, we're looking good. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm with you. It's, I mean, it, depending on your sector in crypto, honestly, it's kind of been a bear market in DeFi for even longer than 2021. I mean, beginning of 2021, you can go all the way back to, so not everything needs to perform, you know, in a totally correlated way. And I, to Vance, your point, I have the same framework in my head, like crypto, crypto is like the early, early warning, you know, bell that was like, hey, ding, 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 uh, liquidity is going to be drawn out of the system. And I think it does a pretty good job of sniffing out when it's going to come back as well. Uh, I'm not saying it, crypto always has to trade like that, but I think that's how it trades today. So I, that's what I think you saw over the weekend too. Like, I think everyone kind of woke up and had the same thought like, oh, Fed is basically done. You know, maybe they can do a 25 basis point hike next week, but you know, he's not volkering 50 basis point hikes into the market anymore like that is that is over even higher for longer if you think about that is pretty bullish that's like it's because there's not many there's no more hikes at least like the market can look through uh you know higher for longer i think pretty easily so i i'm feeling good if they cause a recession and inflation is zero and rates are five percent people are going to be screaming bloody murder freaking out like higher for longer i don't know Forgive me for like not trusting these people, but I, I just don't trust them. And for for the record, like this is exact same thing that happened in 2019. Crypto bottomed in December. Fed there was trouble in the repo market in January, February. Fed pivoted. Stocks bottomed basically when the Fed pivoted, and then they. You ripped. mean? You mean 2018 then 2019? Yeah, 2018 then yeah. 2019. Yeah, but like. But this this happened the last time people are like what do we do now same exact scenario I, you know yeah. hopefully there's not a, a pandemic around the corner but 
it seems like we're following a preset playbook at this point. The variable to track, I'll, I'll say it again, the variable to track, the Cleveland Fed now forecast of inflation. If inflation continues to head in the direction that it seems to be heading, I think everything is going to work itself out. We In the next year, we're going to see sub 2% inflation. Like, dude, everyone is so spooked right now. It doesn't matter if you work in construction or technology or retail. Inflation is basically over, in my opinion. All right, team. This was a fun one. We'll see you next week.